Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long, informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. And I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Professor Joellen Russell. Joellen is an oceanographer, a climate modeler, someone who thinks a lot about the Southern Ocean and other parts of the planet, of course. She works with supercomputers, she works with robotic floats, she does physics, she does biogeochemistry. She's really a force of nature, both in terms of the science that she does and in terms of the, the energy that she brings to whatever room that she's in. Um, she's really uh, someone who does a lot to bring the community together, I think, and to ask hard questions to try to sharpen our focus as an oceanographic community. And we really uh, had a great conversation. I really appreciated her taking some time out of her busy schedule. She was in Cambridge for a separate meeting, so we set aside a couple of hours and had uh, dug into her history and we dug into some of the scientific questions that she's working on now and some of the things that she's interested in going into the future. But I'm really going to get to it as quickly as possible. I don't want to do a long introduction today. So I'll just say thank you again to Joellen Russell for taking some time to, to have this conversation with me. You can find Dr. Russell on Twitter at DeepBlueSeaNext. So that's uh, all together, all one word, no underscores, no spaces or anything like that. You can find her there. And she also has a website, southernocean.arizona.edu, and that will take you to her research page. Of course, you can find her University of Arizona page as well. So um, I'll let her tell you about her history in our conversation, where she's coming from and where she's headed next. In terms of the podcast stuff, I'm still on a monthly schedule, so I'm going to try my best to put these out one a month. I've got two of them recorded that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you all, and those will be out in September and October moving forward. For updates for the podcast, follow at ClimateSciPod on Twitter. And uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and get on into it without any further talking from me. So here is Professor Joellen Russell. Here we go. Yeah. No, I know. I don't think a lot bothers you. I think you're all, I think you're all right. <laughs> I think you. I think you. Uh, yeah. You, not a lot gets to you. I think you're very. You, you seem very confident. And I'm, very, you know. I'm old. But, you know, you're I've old. been doing this for a while, so a lot of the the bumpy bits have kind of rubbed off after. Yeah. So, so there are bumpy bits at some point. Of but, course. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Like um, just that kind of initial feeling of. Okay, am I doing the right thing, or was it that for you, or was uh, it more? For me, you know? I wa- I've I've wanted to be an oceanographer since I was twelve. Yeah. So, and I I uh, wrote um, well even probably before I was twelve, and I scribbled scripts or bust scripts on bust. my sneakers when I on the the rims of my sneakers and the toes when yeah. I was twelve. Oh wow! It's been. Uh, when I got a little bigger, remember this is pre-internet, right? Yeah. So you couldn't just look up what are the 
requirements for going to scripts. It wasn't that sort of thing. You could no. write away for a book or something, but you there was no internet. You didn't. What are we going to do? Call them? I mean, you could get a quest catalog if you requested one. That's what I'm wondering, like how you knew about scripts, because I think I was probably twice that age before I even was aware that well, scripts was. Well, my thing. family's been in the United States for a really long time, like yeah. hundreds of years pre pre United States yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, West Coast since the 1850s. Okay. So uh, um, I wanted to go uh, to Scripps because there's a reputation for it being the absolute best in oceanographic studies in the country, arguably, Woods Hole will argue. But uh, and since I'm a, a Western girl, you know, uh, that that was uh, that always part of the sort of mix. California? You were growing up in California? No, no. Um, I grew up in Kotzebue, Alaska, 31 Alaska. miles above the Arctic Circle, oh, okay. basically in a fishing village. And mm-hmm. when I was 10, we moved to uh, northern Montana. Oh, okay. So my folks still live there. Uh, so when I said Western girl, I meant Western. West, yeah. <laughs> It's not normally what people mean when they say the West Coast. Well, and now I live in Arizona. Everybody's like, why Arizona? I'm like, well, it was the biggest university in the Rocky Mountain West that could afford me. I, <laughs> I used to get that a lot in Colorado, just kind of when you meet people who aren't in the field, they're like, well, why are you doing oceanography in Colorado? It's like, it's fine. You, you don't, being right next to the ocean doesn't help you as much as you think it would if you're studying oceanography. If you're a because, coastal oceanographer, yeah. I suppose, but most of us really want to do blue water. Yeah. And for climate, it's blue water that matters. Yeah. So Global ocean. Yeah, exactly. It's a 72% of the earth that requires extra equipment to get to. Yeah. You know, it's not like a geologist with his boots or whatever, her boots. Uh, yeah. It's it's straight up uh, very difficult. So Alaska. So you, you said you were North of 10? the Bering Strait. North yep. of the Bering Strait. Yep. What was Until that? I was 10. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, it's a dumb question, but what was that like? What's some, do you remember? I you remember, remember the sea it? ice going out every year and thinking, where does it go? Huh. And, you know, once we lost, a, not my dog, but a, we lost, the village lost a dog because he got out on the ice. There was no way to get him back. Oh, no. Yeah, so we went. Yeah. Mel, you know, it's mel- People used melting. to fall through the the ice on their snow machines or, you know, and, and there was, you know, the wisdom was a dog sled, you know, one, it may be a little slower, but it never runs out of gas. Hmm. You can feed them fish and and they will pull you out if you fall in. Hmm. But none of that is true for a snow machine. <laughs> That's true. It has no loyalty. The snow machine. It doesn't. So I grew up learning how to, you know, mush a dog sled, um, skin a seal with an ulu, huh. make birch bark baskets. I, they, but for being, uh, my dad worked at the hospital. And so for being uh, a white kid, you know, in a village of, of Inuit people, um, was pretty extraordinary because they had, you know, absolutely no obligation to be kind to this, you know, mm. interloper. And yet they, they were, they were, they, they changed how I think about the world and how we interact with it and what's important, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's probably still, and it's still with you. It's it still, is. You know, I close yeah. my eyes and I can still see those horizons. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such a Southern ocean obsessive because I knew what the Arctic felt like. I lived there, right? Mm. The yeah. high Arctic, you know, yeah. above the Bering Strait. I wanted to see the deep South. <laughs> Where is it? What does it look like? How does it feel? And when I finally got there on my first research cruise, which which was, you know, um, uh, south of 40, south uh, in the Southeast Pacific in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> oh <my. laughs> it was amazing. The waves were so high. Uh, 
like they would just crush the ship and yeah. you'd feel it shaking trying to get back up yeah. and out and uh the winds i knew what a blizzard felt like and this there was nothing like this i this was something else entirely and it's true the winds are 30 percent stronger down there <laughs> and the Jeez. waves are higher taller crushing or yeah. yeah. than anywhere this it is an extraordinary yeah. place to work so and when you see that data you're like yeah i felt that I understand. yeah well <laughs> and what i'm looking tangibly. for i'm looking for what is the impact hmm. i those winds and now we think they're ramping up and they're you know moving closer to antarctica you know the westerlies and the southern Indian mode both and uh, parts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I spend a lot of time. I first tried going to sea, making measurements, spectrophotometric pH and alkalinity measurements by hand. And what you come to realize after a few cruises, you know, I've spent about a year of my life in the Southern Ocean on different cruises, is that you can't make enough measurements to actually capture the variability and the trend. And it's moving so fast. I mean, pH changes are distinguishable from uh, natural variability in two years. Hmm. Two. Two years. Two years. Okay. It takes 80 years for nitrate, right? Yeah. But two, you know, 30 years for temperature. Hmm. Two years for pH because okay. it's going so fast. It's so distinctive, the anthropogenic acidification. So That's kind of scary. And it's yeah. a part of the puzzle that isn't talked about that much. Well, you know, of I mean, course not, but you know. we're SOCOM, right? Mm. I'm, I'm the modeling lead for the Southern Ocean Carbon and Climate Observations and Modeling, which is basically biogeochemically censored Argo floats. Yeah. So pH, nitrate, oxygen, you know, yeah. uh, uh, backscatter for chlorophyll, et cetera. And that's, so that's that. So you can see how that went, right? I go to the Southern Ocean, make lots of measurements in my PhD, go to the University of Washington's Atmospheric Dynamics to work with Mike Wallace as a postdoc, as a Jaseo postdoc, and spend three years on winds because I went and gave the talk up there for my, my job talk and uh, said, okay, so we see this interannual variability. The first mode is clearly El Nino. And the second mode is this annually varying with a trend signal and I don't know what it is and he just stood up and said that's the southern annual mode and I'm like I need to come work here so where was that this was at the University of Washington's atmospheric atmospheric sciences department with Mike Wallace who's an atmospheric dynamic can we circle back around to that I was kind of curious about so you were in Alaska you had all these kind of visceral experiences you know with the Arctic, yep. you know, with nature, with winds. And with and being with, on the ocean. This yeah. is a fishing village, right? Yeah. Everybody goes to sea in tiny kayaks and, and, and cloth-covered boats, <laughs> skin boats. Um, these are... It, it, and, and you take your life in your hands when you go out in the ice and the, the water like that. But, you know, yeah. walrus might stave in your boat. You might, you <laughs> know, a lot of things can go wrong. Yeah. But it's also terribly mysterious and you know just utterly fascinating as a child you're like where does the sea ice go yeah (laughs) it's compelling in that way it's it's drawing you it's it's, that's it that's it exactly other people worry about where wall street goes but to me it was like more fundamental Hmm. where does the water go where does the sea ice go why is it changing where's the permafrost going to go what's what's going on more basic you know yeah. it's just we're, we're in that natural environment and so you were struck by the kind of power of that and just and, and the experience of being surrounded by that plus i'm living with the people that are very much living in the environment you know with yeah. the environment rather than in a city where maybe you know you might have to remember to bring an umbrella but you're not really fussed about weather hmm. 
Yeah, I guess some, some folks like to go, you know, that, that's part of why they go out hiking, I guess, is they're trying to, um, to overgeneralize it a little bit, but they're trying to connect with that sense yes. of nature. They're trying to connect with, yep. okay, what's it like to just be like an organism, a thing, you know, yes. in a vast expanse that is yes. much, much bigger than you. And the, you can kind of experience the smallness of that. And if you grow up the, like that, you feel it all the time, yeah. even when you come to the city. Yeah. No matter where you go. In fact, we have a we have a, a quiz we give in my global and regional uh, climatology kind of class, uh, which is basically an atmospheric science class, but uh, where we actually give them uh, landscapes, hmm. like pictures of landscapes with no humans on them, and ask them, "Where are you? Hmm. Do you know what what kinds hmm. of plants this means? Where you might be?" Hmm. Because it's very quite specific. You know, we, we pick, you know, there are some things we can fool them, but we don't try to fool them. And frankly, when they start, they can't answer any of them. Hmm. But by the yeah, end, no. they'll get almost all of them right. So they become more oriented and more right. familiar. Where are, what, what grows here? You know, hmm. who do you eat? It's sort of one of those things you teach your kids when they're little. Who do you eat? Well, do you eat? what do you eat? And, and where does it go? And how does it grow? And why does it grow here and not somewhere else? Hmm. It's a it's a connected set of concepts that kind of you know it, it grounds you into a particular place and it it helps you get a feeling of oh yeah okay I'm, I'm part of a much bigger much larger system. And when you go to climate models, you're like ah okay. So if the precipitation, the dry seasons in Arizona get longer, and the water gets more intense, then that's going to favor things like weeds and grass, right. and it's going to disfavor things like trees and cactus. Right? right, so we can think about why is the Sonoran Desert where I live in Arizona full of cactus, and why is the Kalahari Desert not? Yeah, you know they only get one season of rain, and that's part of why climate's so kind of interesting as a problem is because as it shifts, it can change so many other things, so many other parts of that interconnected system. You know, yeah, yeah. So, you, so your dad was he a physician at the hospital? He's the, the he was the director of mental health and social services yeah. for the Kobuk and Noatak River systems for the Indian Health Service of the United States. Okay, yeah. So we went from rural Alaska to rural Montana. Yeah, as part of that, because <laughs> it's part, part of, of his program. work. Yes. Okay, that sounds like intense work. It sounds like it could be could be hard. Yeah. He was the Iron, ha- Iron Man of, of mental health service because it, um, most people don't last very long uh, because it's very, very hard work working with uh, people who've suffered essentially genocide. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it must, must be because it's, you, I mean, you have your training, I guess, but you have to have that strong emotional core. To get up, you know, to every, get day up every day and, and go back to work. <laughs> get back into it. And you, and, uh, you can't fix things. You can only mm. just walk along with them be witness and try to help when you can Hmm. in very specific ways you know you you can't fix the large problem but you can try to help in very specific ways yeah yeah i mean okay there's a climate analogy for that too i guess in terms of doing stuff for climate that you know you might not be able to fix the entire thing but it might be very specific focused things that that you could do um, but I don't know how far down that analogy we want to go no, necessarily. No, no, it's, it's important. We, we, uh, I, it's like a no-look pass. I think of my colleagues across the world very highly. I'm here at the British Antarctic Survey, um, you know, at this fantastic Antarctic Climate 21 workshop um, with people from around the world, you know, from Brazil and, and all over Europe. And, you know, these are... Um, 
And I, I know that they came here giving up pieces of their summer vacation, you know, uh, you know, probably not getting reimbursed for the whole thing. And they're here to do their work to try and help make progress. Can we see ahead? This is a particularly a CMIP6 thing. Yeah. Can we improve our climate models imp- so that we can improve our projections so that we can help the people we live with? It's, yeah. it's such a critical and fundamental thing. And it's wonderful because I, I absolutely know, like a no-look pass on a basketball court or whatever, that they're doing their level best, as am I. And when we meet here in the summer, and it's beautiful here in Cambridge. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. But at the same time, I could be home with my little ones, <laughs> yeah. you know, or uh, I have other work. <laughs> but I'm here because it's important. And I know that everyone else in that room feels the same way. It is, uh, we work, how does the proverb go? Um, We work alone together in the same direction. Oh, yeah, that's nice. I like that. That, that, You just reminded me along those lines. I'll have to look it up afterwards to credit this properly. But on Twitter, I saw this very nice thread. Science Twitter actually can be all right. I love science Twitter. These, I've got many tweets. I enjoy (laughs) it so much. Yeah. If you curate it well, it can be a nice Mm. environment, right? Yeah. It is. Uh, So I'll have to look up who this was, but it was a a researcher who was talking about the Dust Bowl Mm -hmm. and he, he showed this index for, um, this isn't my area, so I'm going to get the name of it wrong, but it was an index of how bad the dustiness, how bad the Dust Bowl like conditions are at any given time you know, in the kind of central part of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he showed that, like, well, here there was an event before the Dust Bowl. It was actually a little bit smaller, but it had enormous economic and personal consequences that destroyed people's lives. People died, and, you know, that it caused families to break apart and be scattered to the winds. And he said, well, what's this? If you look a few years after this event, which was absolutely catastrophic, there was a much bigger punch like a much bigger drought event happened, you know, many years after that, that, that extreme event. So it was a much bigger event in terms of the physical impact. Exactly. But the difference was that in those intervening years, people had learned how to adapt to that situation. They had learned how to, um, to not be so susceptible to, and to that, help that kind each of other. impact and how to, how to help each other. Yeah. So it made me think about that a lot that, Yes, there is a big, powerful physical system humming underneath that we don't individually have a lot of control over. But that is one possible way. And maybe, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm, you know, aggrandizing us too much. But that could be part of, like, what we do is hopefully to help uh, people figure out what the impacts are going to be like in the future so that we can, so that, so that the impacts on, like, human lives won't be as severe and won't of be in the extremes. You know? Of yeah, course. Yeah. I work at the <laughs> University of Arizona, which is a land-grant institution, i.e. it got a grant of land from Abraham Lincoln, you know, his <laughs> charter back in the day. And uh, we, uh, uh, so we have a, a, it's part of our job to serve the people of the state of Arizona. Yeah. And so one of the things we're trying to do is help them, uh, adapt help them get ready help them help them see the future a little bit better so yes. that we can all work together to uh, minimize uh, both the size of the impact and then the specific impacts and of course we are i mean mm-hmm. what else are we doing as scientists we're trying to do the absolute best science and i i think of it as prediction science and for me, like, I can't imagine doing anything more important than try and what person on planet Earth out of all 7 billion of us wouldn't, 
wouldn't like to consult an oracle, wouldn't like to know a little more about the future and, and so that we can prepare. I mean, I don't care whether you're saving for your kid's college or you're trying to buy a house or you're thinking about maybe having grandbabies someday. It's like my own personal obsession. <laughs> and uh, everybody wants to be able to make their, make their, their lives happier and more prosperous. And some of that will be preventing some of those worst impacts, hopefully, through mitigation first. Hopefully we can actually prevent the worst of this. And then adaptation when we can't, when we'll just have to live with some of the consequences of our current actions. And what is amazing about this is how both nationally and globally we have an incredibly strong group of scientists. They're just too thin, frankly. I know for oceanographers, the AGU calls, says that there's roughly 6,000 working PhD-level oceanographers in the world. Hmm. Maybe 60,000 meteorologists, maybe 600,000 geologists. But 6,000, and we're responsible for 72% of the Earth's surface. You know, uh, 93% of the top of the atmosphere heat budget and uh, 25% of the carbon. One out of every four carbon molecules that comes out of anybody's tailpipe is going into the ocean, and half of that goes into the Southern Ocean. So when I come to the British Antarctic Survey, of course I expect you guys to be working hand over fist, you know, to to think about and help us prepare for what's coming. It is already ongoing. It's a huge deal. And 6,000 of us, that means basically we're probably friends with a good half of all the people working on this in the world. Probably. Yeah. You, it's You go to AGU, and AGU by itself, the American Geophysical Union meeting, has 20,000 geoscientists. And, you know, I was at the Ocean Sciences meeting, not this last one, but the one before. You know, Walter Monk, you know, famous oceanographer, died this spring. And uh, he stood there at 100 and I think 2 or 101 and gave this plenary talk. And it Is just... The New Orleans one? Or the, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it just crushed me because he said, uh, my generation's greatest challenge was beating hitler Hmm. and yours is climate change yeah you there are not enough oceanographers you just hold the line Hmm. and i thought you could just hear the whole room oh my god you know and yes Uh, we will yes we promise no we won't give up no we won't Hmm. and it, it is just a huge deal and and how long does it think about it? I'm a professor. How long does it take to build an oceanographer? Ten years at a minimum. Yeah, yeah at least. And they're going to turn around to us, our governments, etc., and they're going to say, "Build me a bunch of oceanographers." Every university needs at least five, and you know, because they have geology departments in every university. They've got twenty people in them as an art, you know, kind of archival legacy of the fossil fuel industry. And yet now we need to know for transient climate change, this big ramp up we've got, we have to know how much ocean the ocean is taking up of both the heat and the and the um, carbon. Absolutely. Must know. Yes, and a lot of that depends on the specific patterns, the specific spatial patterns of yes, mixing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. which is the wind stirring. <laughs> and I'm looking at this going, I live in a desert, we follow the global mean temperature. Whatever the ocean does to buffer us is what I will live in, yeah. you know, what my yeah. people will live in. So I'm like, all righty, guys, you know, we got to get to work because this is really important. And then there's a second part, which is the prediction science part, which is the memory 
the predictability is in the ocean, mm. not in the mm. atmosphere. Mm. And if you want to get from a seven to a 10 day forecast, or maybe even to a 14, it's going to depend on those initial conditions in the ocean mm. being beautiful. Craig McLean, who's our acting chief scientist at NOAA in the US, he likes to say at his talks now, you like your forecast? Thank an oceanographer. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. This is really important. And uh, so we, we have our work cut out for us. This is, and, and you know, we work alone together hmm. in the same direction, all of us. Not too long ago, the ocean was a slab to folks like that. Oh. They, were just, they were just represented as a single uniform, it's, you know, kind of layer. The, you know, so the Met Office has moved to a climate model much sooner than the U.S. did. But hmm. just two years ago, we, we transitioned. We're just, I think, last week it was operational, the new FV3GFS, which is, of course, the GFDL climate model, the finite volume core model, which was transferred to, um, they did a bake-off you know, between the old GFS model and the weather model and the new climate model. And the climate model won the bake-off and they have now operationalized it. And so we're using a climate model to see to make our weather forecast now. So I always love it when we get some old guy in the audience who says, well, I just don't trust those models. I'm like, do you like your weather forecast? (laughs) Thank an oceanographer. (laughs) It's quite literal. Heat capacity. Well, and how much precipitation would you like? And we cannot solve that precipitation problem. I mean, you guys are, this is an island nation, right? Hmm. Of course you can't do a forecast without knowing what the ocean is. But the United States, people in Oklahoma would like to think that it doesn't matter what the the ocean does and they're just not right yeah that yeah, is yeah. not correct yeah. <laughs> do you mind if we back around I, sure. I was kind of, so what was your mom up to in alaska and yeah. my mom wrote grants for the local um uh, uh nana corporation to um uh, uh to the federal uh, different federal agencies to um uh uh, promote kids programs mm-hmm. like summer um, summer uh, camp etc um, uh, <laughs> camp in Unalik <laughs> um, uh, in order to provide activities that would not um, mostly we you know kids would work with their parents at the fishing camps but um, you know a whole summer of that maybe is not quite so good for them mm-hmm. so uh, she she worked with the local folks to help write grants to to fund. Um, activities for children. So big. I'm hearing a lot of social responsibility, kind of in the family yes. of like. There's yes, a, a real I will feeling. never be able to live up to my parents' legacy. <laughs> it's just completely true. They've they've spent a lifetime in service. Yeah, that, that's amazing, and it's it's to and that seems to be a part of your you know story as well. And so it seems <laughs> well, like I'm I'm your, the least you know, of my family. My, I have a sister who's a nurse. <laughs> yeah. I have a brother who teaches at the Tahona Otter Reservation just outside of Tucson hmm. at the Baba Kivri. He teaches math at the high school hmm. on the reservation. My sister-in-law is a, a music teacher, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I get to be a professor, which is, you know, maybe maybe not as... Uh, uh, <laughs> you, help, you help people. And like you said, you, you know, you're helping future climate projections. I hope so. And you, you also... I think this is something that is a little underrated sometimes about being a professor that uh let me just give you an example Uh, i won't say any names but occasionally i go to these things in cambridge uh for people who 
are, let's say, you know, looking to make the move into a lectureship mm-hmm. into a permanent position. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get somebody who seriously has the attitude. They'll say something like, oh, how do I, when I negotiate my contract, how do I get out of teaching? How do I, you know, not teach? Because I guess they must think of themselves as some, oh, I have some grand, you know, research vision that I simply must carry out and I can't be bothered <laughs> to, you know. But I, uh, and it, it really bothered me to hear that because I thought like, ah, give, give me your job. Like, give me your, I, I'll do that I'll job. Do that. I'll do yep. that. Because really, um, I think you know teaching can be such a critical way that you like can help individual people and can make an impact in individual people's lives. Um, not just by giving them information, but sometimes you're giving them like an example of like, okay, here, here's a person. I'm a person. Here's somebody who spends their life thinking about data, thinking about systems, thinking about physical systems, mm-hmm. trying to understand how the world works. And here's how I conduct myself. Here's how I think about. Uh, the news. Here's how I think about you know problems. Here's so you're like I think in the best version of that, in the best version of being a professor, you're showing somebody a great example of how to be critical and how to use your own brain. You're modeling the behavior. Like, you know, yeah, you're modeling yeah. how you you know it is a form of teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all of it is, and there are the three ways that I'll have the biggest impact. Right. One is teaching. Mm-hmm. I teach an oceanography, intro oceanography to over 700 students every fall. Mm. I also teach graduate classes in the spring, et cetera. But the main, main impact is we actually get people like Hannah Zanowski, who's now a working oceanographer at the University of Washington, what, did her PhD with Jorge Sarmento at Princeton. But she started in my great big huge cattle class at the University mm-hmm. of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And it, it's actually a lot. Everybody's like, oh, you must have classroom management problems. I'm like... No. Oh, they must be terrible students. What? That's not true at all. I have brilliant students. They're very kind to me. It's a ton of fun. I yeah. enjoy it. I don't see you Teaching. having classroom problems. I don't. I think <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we have a lot of fun. It is. Yeah. It's just true. We have a blast. I also have great grad students. One of mine is now I just finished his first year as an assistant professor at Yale. Yeah. You know, we it it's wonderful. And even the folks who don't go out into research, they're going out into the world. That's right. And they they have, you know, a nice example in their heads, uh, you know, hopefully if they carried it with them of, okay, here's how here's a science. Here's a scientist. Here's how a scientist yes. orients themselves with One respect hopes. to the world. You know? I hope yeah. so. It's really important because I worry that we are going to get to a point where this knowledge of for general citizens as well as for our specific workforce, whether you're an urban planner, you work for a mapping company, you do floods, you're working on you know insurance. You're there are so many occupations that uh, need to understand what happens next and the precipitation problem that a hot ocean brings with it. Mm-hmm. Not a joke. And prediction mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. and how we use it and what the best way to plan for all this is. These are critical things. So when my students say, well, I kind of think I might want to just get a job. I'm like, yes, you know, because academia is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. I encourage them, you know, I want them to, I want them to, you know, to some of them need to become teachers like me, you know, of course. But at the same time, you know, there's the teaching and mentoring. Then there's things like, you know, SOCOM, like, you know, biogeochemical, censored floats mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the satellite proposal I'm deputy PI on or there's our okay there's so but there's like there's research but there's also and then there's modeling 
you know. Mm. So I feel like these things go together. They're built together. That you don't build yeah. one and then the other. You, you they go together. They're one piece. Modeling is like here's here's I'm I'm this kind of person. Here's an example <laughs> of a scientist. That kind of modeling, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, meant modeling, per- just uh, America, climate modeling, miracle modeling. modeling. Climate. Okay, <laughs> so a lot of people. I think that the, you don't develop the model without developing the observations. Yeah, um, yeah that these yeah. things are are linked systems, and particularly as we're moving to initial prediction, not just spin up for long-term projections, that in fact it becomes even more critical. That we develop our observing systems at the same time we are developing our our climate modeling tools and our weather modeling tools. So the problem is is that a lot of times these these communities have been disconnected. They need to work together. And so a lot of this community development thing that is this sort of, you know, how how do we interact with each other? Are we welcoming and encouraging our more diverse Mm. members because two parts one they might have ideas about things and look at things in ways that the rest of us don't and two we need them to go and speak to the communities that aren't yet able to hear us because you know they Mm. have not traditionally been represented and we need those voices to go out so again the teaching part of it and mentoring part is critical to the actually getting of the work done (laughs) yeah yeah, definitely well i think i like Catherine hayhoe i've mentioned her on the podcast before but you know she she has access to a specific community yes you know, that she can that go most talk other to people directly. don't that's right yeah and they hear her yeah yeah that's right that because she's already inside and she can say don't don't you don't have to close up the drawbridge you don't have to you know you can put your swords down it's okay that's right <laughs> yeah exactly and has... we need to think about that with with many communities yes. that have not been traditionally represented. Uh, the University of Arizona is a Hispanic serving institution, according to the Department of Education. But of course we are. We're Southern Arizona. <laughs> We're, you know, 80 miles from the Mexican border. Mm-hmm. Of course we are. Yeah. And uh, that is important because those, uh, those communities have not always been part of the conversation and it's really critical. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, we, we kind of we went through your history super fast, and I was trying to get my head around. So Montana, and then where did you do your undergrad? Or then you moved? I did my undergrad at Harvard. I okay. uh, when as an, a rural, you know, uh, student as a as a kid, uh, we did, literally there, this was pre internet, so yeah. there was no it, unless you took a correspondence class. There was no chemistry or physics or calculus at my high school. Oh, really? So I begged my parents, if I could get a scholarship, could I go to boarding school? Hmm. And I got a scholarship to go to St. Paul's school, and they let me go. Where is that? Uh, it's in New England. It's one of those uh, St. Grottle sex, uh, you know, uh, traditional boarding hmm. schools. John Kerry went there. Okay. Paul Kushner, <laughs> the, uh, the Jared Kushner, the... the uh, uh, yes, he went there too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from there, I went to Harvard. Uh, from Harvard, I went to Scripps. Yeah. I went to Harvard because Scripps, uh, I didn't find out until I was in boarding school, literally, <laughs> that you can't go to Scripps unless, except for grad school. It's a grad only right, program, right, right? Right, right? I was crushed. Oh, no. I, it's like, so quite legitimately, Harvard was a backup. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds awful, but I like to say it because, you know, it's not like the oceanography program is all that. <laughs> God, I guess I'll go to Harvard. I know, I know, yeah. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Had you heard about the MIT Woods Hole? Was that really like... I had. Vi- that, I visited. Was, I yeah. thought about it, uh, but I'd always wanted to go to Scripps. It mm. was just not even a... Um, yeah. I'd had my heart set on it since I was 12. So, yeah. so you learned about... 
about it while you were living like in Montana or uh, probably were, earlier. I had probably a earlier. um uh uh my great aunt Mary Ellen, who I'm named for, was the first woman engineer at Boeing. Oh, cool. She got her master's in math uh, from Stanford, and uh, she's the one who told me about Scripps and the oceanographers. Right. They, uh, the first woman to ever get a PhD in oceanography was in 1937, and her name was Easter Ellen Cup, and she got her PhD from Scripps. Hmm. Um, and that's how my aunt knew. Uh, Speaking of underrepresented communities, sometimes that doesn't happen right in an underrepresented community they might not know about scripts correct so there might be somebody in an underrepresented community who might have some of this the similar kind of early feelings that you described about like this is cool and interesting and but if they but don't not know, know where to go existed, then they might right. not know where exactly for that is whereas now. i was obsessed because my great aunt told me so Nice. I mean, yeah. I, I you saw Sally Ride on the cover of Time magazine, mm. and you thought about, ooh, space sounds really cool. But you know, if you want to be an explorer, there's kind of two two ways to go. You can go space, or you can go ocean, <laughs> up or down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I chose ocean. Yeah. Um, because of my childhood in Alaska, yeah. mm. and uh, uh, and it has been an adventure. What did you study at Harvard? What was your Earth and planetary sciences. Yeah. It's the you know it's the earth sciences major there. Who was around? Is that Eli Zipper? He was not no, there not yet. There I, yet. Okay. I worked. I'm sorry. I'm old. No, no. <laughs> I worked okay. with uh, um, uh, Dick Holland, Heinrich Holland, who yeah. is a famous geochemist, now deceased, and uh, uh, Jim Butler, who wrote um, uh, Carbon Dioxide Equilibria, and. Mm. Uh, uh, had my first training cruise with uh, Alan Robinson, who is very famous mesoscale oceanographer, hmm. and a total hard ass. <laughs> <laughs> there were days where we literally counted the number of di- words of English that he spoke during a lecture because it was just math, nothing oh. but math, you know. And he basically was saying good morning, and then he'd start and he'd keep throwing up the chalkboards, and that was it. That was that was the whole lecture. Oh, yep. man. A friend of mine told me about a, a math lecturer he had once who wouldn't write anything down on the board. He would just talk at you in math, about the mathematics. Yes, in that's math, it. That he would do that. He, he has this great story about how they, they finally convinced him to write something down. Uh, they said, can you please write something? We're really struggling. Can you please write something down on the board so we have something to, to grapple onto? And so one morning the professor wrote down, let P be a point. And then he just turned around and went right back into his normal like, lecturing in <laughs> mathematics. So it became a phrase of like, let P be a point for like, oh, that didn't really help. <laughs> really help. So lots of, lots of math just being thrown at you directly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then, and then you go out to sea and you do a triangle across the, the Gulf stream and calculate the transports and nice. from the CTD cast and all the rest of it, it was quite, so you, you know, get to do that as an undergrad. Yep. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So just, um, get on a small ship Yep. What were you Out of Woods Hole. Out of Woods yep. Hole. Yeah. Yep. With a rosette. There you go. <laughs> it was, uh, let's just say that almost everybody was sick except uh, me, a postdoc, and another uh, undergrad. And uh, the, the worst part is, is he knew my name. Or I'm not sure mm. he knew my first name, but he knew. So I, I'd hear him. And I, like, at one point was literally tried to crawl under the printer. so Because I knew he wouldn't let me under deck. <laughs> I tried to crawl under the printer to sleep because nobody else was. There was just the three of us working yeah. and him. And everyone else was sick as dogs downstairs. Oh, oh the no. smell. And uh, so um, I crawled under the printer just to lay down 
while the rosette was down, and he literally kicked me out for a minute. Russell, get back on the winch! Oh, and I was like, ah! <laughs> oh, jeez. You got water samples to take. That's you're right. Like, that is right. So you're taking the water samples, you're, take, you're sampling yep. them, you're take, take, yep. putting them yep. in the bottle. Well, mostly we were just doing basic things like doing uh, uh, salinity, you know, yeah. samples, etc. Not, you know, just to confirm the CTD results from the sensors on that array, but yeah. nothing too fancy. No, you know, we weren't doing oxygen titrations or anything like that, but it was enough. <laughs> you, got, you got the salinity to kind of calibrate this, yes. the CTD. Yes, exactly. You know, That's yeah, right. Yeah. Doing the samples by hand was considered, uh, you know, trial by fire. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt. <laughs> Take the samples by hand. That's run them, right. Run them through the cell. That's right. Exactly. The, yeah. That's it. Was it on board or did you take the, did you uh, do the cell? There was, the yes, it was on board. And then we had a, I mean, the ship was not that small. It okay. was a, an honest to goodness training crew. So. Hmm. Okay. Which one is that? I don't What's remember. The, remember the name Honestly, I'm. Um, I, this really is back away. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... well I, I graduated in '93. Yeah. So that tells you that <laughs> <laughs> I was in the Southern Ocean in '94 yeah. when I was out at Scripps. So okay. Yeah. So you graduated undergrad in '93. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I would, that's one of the things you reminded me about something that I really like about oceanography is that interface between you know, the theory, the abstract mathematical theory, and the just going out to sea and taking measurements. And I, I think this... How crazy I, I know, is Rodi Z and the yeah. fact that it works <laughs> yeah. and it always works. Yeah. How crazy is that? Rotating planet. <laughs> it is. It is. There <laughs> are so planet. many fundamental things that are so obvious and it's so complicated in the atmosphere and in the mm-hmm. ocean. You're like, let me do a cast and I will tell you. <laughs> give me two casts and I will tell you a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just give me a pressure gradient. And that's I can, right. I can I'll tell, tell you. So much. I'll tell you so much. Exactly. <laughs> give me a cast and I'll tell you like how thick the intermediate water layer is. Yes. You know the how many how much you know eighteen degree water there mm. is and where was it ventilated and yeah. all, it's so much fun. Oceanographers, come on in. <laughs> I love the story of the discovery of the deep western boundary current mm-hmm. in the Atlantic, you know, because it starts with somebody sitting, you know, it's not Stommel, right? I think it was Stommel. It was, it was sitting well, in a, you can't, in a, you, know. you, you can't really say discover because, of course, mariners were using it as a superhighway forever. The deep one? The deep, <laughs> oh, you the, mean the, the return? Deep, the return ah, current. Yeah, okay. That's what I was talking yeah. about. Yeah, the return mm. current. Yeah, because from, from my understanding, it was, you know, kind of predicted by... Uh, you know, I think it was Stom. I think I'm doing yes. that right. Sitting at his desk and doing some mathematics, you know, some abstract mathematics, and then so that there ought to be a deep return western boundary current underneath the Gulf Stream, you know, underneath the the one that people had right. been using for for centuries for navigation that you mentioned. And then they went out and measured it, and there there, there it is. Something predicted by mathematics. I know. Isn't that cool? It's very cool. You mentioned the oracle earlier. The, the oracle is differential equations. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. It is. And uh, people are used to thinking that the weather just blows in. Hmm. They don't understand the rhyme or reason, although they expect the seasons, etc. Hmm. And then if you're used to reading a quarterly report, um, you expect to see a January to January gain hmm. in whatever business you're looking at. Hmm. And you forget how much of everything we do is determined by our seasons. Hmm. And the hmm. seasons are really weather patterns. Hmm. I mean, it's not like the solar radiation difference is all that great. It's when that jet moves north of you or south hmm. of you. You know, in Arizona, we are, you know, lovely, dry and sunny. And then the jet drops south of us and all of a sudden we're cold and wet. 
what? It's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, I, I notice it. You, you can notice it a lot more here. We're up at fifty-two north latitude right now. You are, and you can really tell. I when actually you're on looked one that up last the, night. I'm like, yeah. it's light, and then it got light at like four in the morning. I'm like, what's going on? And then I looked up the latitude. Fifty-two. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, fifty-two. Yeah, that was. Um, I, I was I had a late night the other night, and it was two thirty in the morning, and. Um, it was a Saturday, Saturday evening. I don't do it that often, but this was a rare, rare occasion. And we walked outside, and yeah, it was still light out. It was still uh, just along the horizon. There was a little bit of a band, just, a my, band of light. My jet lag had me up at an odd time. I'm like, <laughs> it isn't morning. As I check the clock, it isn't morning. Four <laughs> thirty. <laughs> but the light was up. <laughs> the light was there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fifty two. So it's it's really dramatic. I yeah, remember but, as a child, basically my parents having to put black trash bags over the windows because we could hear the other kids outside playing at two in the morning because it was light. The sun was up. Already. We were we were above the Arctic Circle. It was light and uh, barely going down. And in the winter, we would take flashlights. Yeah. Uh, back and forth to school because you went to school in darkness and you came home in darkness. The whole day. Just yep. all darkness. So do you remember the latitude there? It's at 60-something, I guess? Or Oh, yes. Was, must yeah. be. It's yeah. above the Bering Strait. It's yeah. 31 miles above the Arctic Circle. So, yeah. yeah. 60-ish something, yeah, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, so, the, so Harvard, you get to have some real theoretical and also hands-on oceanographic mm-hmm. experience. And then you go to Scripps. And then you I mean, go to Scripps. <laughs> which, and you, you had your shoe. That you, you thought it was a shoe that you had written Scripps or Bust? I did. Yeah. My yeah. sneakers, you yes. And you know the white rim around a pair yeah. of Converse sneakers, a pair of Chucks? Yeah. I had written Scripps or Bust on my, my sneakers. Did you take those with you? Did you have them uh, No, I okay. thrashed those long ago, okay. but yeah. yes. <laughs> So that must have been exciting. That must have it been was. great to get, to get to go there. It was. You've been picturing it for so I long. I had been. It's true. Mm-hmm. It was everything I wanted it to be, too. Really, mm-hmm. really an extraordinary place to work and to learn. Yeah, I said, I want to go to sea. I want to go to the Southern Arch. And they're like, let me see what's, who's going out, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and sure enough, I got my first bootleg berth almost immediately. Let's walk down um, the hall and see who's going. It was. That was exactly how it went. That's fantastic. No, really, most people can't imagine what it's like to, like... So, Lynn Talley was on my committee. Joe Reed was... Uh, I worked with him, like, if there was an afternoon, um, uh, I owed him time, basically, for no reason, except that he wanted me to bring him the chemis- chemical measurements, like C13 and other things that are ventilation properties, and he would teach me how to uh, objectively map and contour you know, um, so I learned like what the ocean does and how it moves from him. I mean, it's crazy. And Lynn Talley too, who I still work with because she's the head of the OBS, um, the lead for the OBS, the same way I'm the lead for the modeling for SOCOM. I mean, it's a hmm. uh, they, these are extraordinary people, you got, and I got really lucky. Yeah, plugged into the community. And like you said, it's not a huge community, so once no. you've met a few people... Well, and my advisor was Andrew Dixon, who makes the carbon standards for the you know the Global Ocean Program, right? Mm. So, I mean, he's a part, chemist par extraordinaire. And uh, not only did he write the... He wrote literally the recipe book for all calculations of, of carbon fluxes you know and i remember like one of my first years there was when they were actually put all of the 
uh, PCO2 collaborators on the rail outside Ray Weiss's lab from all around the world mm. and then ran the same water to find out if the equilibrators were saying the same thing, which, by the way, they were not. Yeah. Okay. I thought, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and using yeah. Andrew's standards and uh, methods, et cetera, and I, I, my first, you know, second cruise, I took his spectrophotometric pH, you know, with calibrated acids and all the rest of it, um, spec- calibrated dyes, and then uh, open cell titration for alkalinity. These were all, like, really cutting edge. To me, it was like old hat because it's just Andrew's gear, right? You know, the stuff I'd been trained on. Woo! And now that's what we do is we use pH and alkalinity to calculate uh, the CO2 flux on robot floats. It's really, it's all, it looks like I spent some time getting where I was going, but in fact, I was just picking up legitimately required skills in order to be able to do the things that were most important. Yeah. I wanted to know what the Southern Ocean was doing in the places I couldn't be on a ship. These robot floats are ex- Argo is, you know, biogeochemical Argo is exactly what that was always meant to be. Yeah. Do we want to talk about SOCOM? Sure. Yeah, okay. we or, can, we started, or whatever. We Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's, yeah, it's all, it's all good. That seems like a natural, because that's obviously a big part of what you've been working on the past few years. Um, so this, this sort of, um, I got to be kind of a fly on the wall. There was a, a, a Clivar meeting in Princeton that I think I, mm-hmm. I, I went to. Uh, Taka, my advisor, couldn't make it. And uh, so I, I went and I got to sit in this room to listen to. I think you were there, and um, you, you, were, you were probably there because mm-hmm. that was a. And Anand, uh, Anand, not a Descon was mm-hmm. there, and Jorge Sarmiento. And uh, I remember listening to everyone in the, in the room kind of going, like, well, this will never happen. We'll never get funding for this. But if we could, you know, get funding for something really exciting, what would we want to do? And it, uh, it happily did, and it was it was you, this idea. Do you do you want to hear how that happened? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did so come so, happen? Uh, <laughs> I have a pr- particular perspective on this because uh, I was a new professor at the University of Arizona. Just came from GFDL. So after you know Scripps, I went to UW. Um, and worked on the atmosphere and the Westleys, and then I went because annular modes, and then I went to modes of climate variability with Mike Wallace, and then I went to GFDL. And I spent years helping develop CM 2.1. I'm on all these papers. And the GM parameterization with Steve Griffiths, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the one that is so famous now. Not GM itself, but the way that we cl- um, uh, clip it and uh, scale it to shear. And it particularly is essential for a, a, a not eddy resolving model in the Southern Ocean. The ACC is absolutely essential. You can't get it without it. Mm-hmm. So I spent all that time at GFDL modeling, etc., um, and then got to University of Arizona. And I uh, put we um, I did a pro- well I developed a project with Jorge doing a climate process team on the Southern Ocean. It was mm-hmm. the first one that NOAA ever funded that was actually on carbon, not just the physics, mm-hmm. because we and so this climate process team CPT between Princeton GFDL and the University of Arizona. Was was successful. We did we did really great work actually looking at how the carbon was changing associated with the mixing in the Southern Ocean for global models, but it's not. A, we didn't have enough data. Mm-hmm. That's just flat true. So uh, I was um, uh, I tried to get. So I went okay. So I went to this deep ocean workshop at in Hobart, mm-hmm. um, thrown by Bernadette Sloyan and Steve Rintoul, and uh, I. 
they were talking about how much it was warming in the deep ocean around Antarctica and how quickly it was happening and how much it was essential that we understand the link between the surface and the deep. And that uh, and it was fascinating, you know, and I'm a Southern Ocean junkie. So I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. So I went to Steve Rinchel and I said, Steve, what can I do to help? And he said, uh, and you know, he kind of stands, he's very quiet, he stands right he looks at me and he says, you could send money. And I'm like, all righty then, <laughs> money it is. And I went back to the U.S. and I went to the National Science Foundation website and I looked and said, where is a big interdisciplinary pot of money? I don't want to take it out of the director of budgets. I don't want to skin anybody. But where could we get a ton of money to do the Southern Ocean really big? And there was this Science and Technology Center possibility. So I wrote an abstract and uh, outline for how we could do this. And I sent it to my dean and I said, look, if you, if you make up me one of the potentials, I, we will totally sell this. Hmm. And he said, you're too young. It'll never go. You know, hmm. you really need somebody senior to do this, hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I was not allowed to put my abstract out of the university. Oh. I called Jorge that day. I was so mad. Hmm. I mean, I shouldn't be mad. I knew what the requirements were, but I was still just heartbroken and angry because I'm like, this is the most important thing we can do. And uh, felt like they were being myopic and not seeing how cool this would be. Hmm. I called Jorge and I said, Jorge, we need to write a, you know, forget the CPT. It's time to do a science, an STC. And he says, what's an STC? Hmm. I pushed him on my research and said, can you call your dean and find out if we could do this? And he said, I'll call him. And he did. He just picked up the phone. Jorge made a move. Picked up the phone and the dean said, yes, we only have two submissions. We're allowed three. You can have the third spot. Mm. Excellent. That was it. And after that, we sat there and we're like, okay, what do we need? Well, we need Lynn because Southern Ocean and Oceanography, we're never getting to see. We won't be able to do it. And then the floats were just becoming, you know, the the new pH sensor that Ken Johnson had developed, um, he had started deploying them on floats. Yeah. Um, just in its infancy. And uh, uh, it was really exciting. Hervé Koch and other people over in uh, um, uh, Villefranche had already done versions of this, but with a lot of sensors, et cetera. We were like, okay, we need basic. We need the fundamental BGC parameters. And what do we think those are? And how do we calculate carbon fluxes, et cetera? So Southern Ocean, carbon and climate. So calm. So, so calm. Yeah. And it's not nitrate. We do nitrate, of course. It's And we do care about the biology. We have um, um, uh, fluorescence and backscatter on um, optical sensors on the floats that NASA pays for. Um, but it was a... The thought was we need fundamentally to understand what the main BGC parameters are with a very particular emphasis on carbon. Right. Kind of like the CPT, but now you know, with actual new robot flows. <laughs> so pH ends up being one of those. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. pH is the way we get to carbon and the salinity sensors on all the, is the way we get to alkalinity. And we use these wonderful algorithms developed by people like Nancy Williams and uh, Dick Feely and Rick Wanikoff to um, actually uh, calculate the fluxes based on just the pH. Cause we don't have a second carbon parameter. So we have to make some assumptions, but in fact, we calibrate every, Cast and then we um, uh, uh, we validate and calibrate with every float deployed. So we've had a lot of really fun. we we over we've deployed over 150 now. 
Um, and what does uh, that look like? Validating a, a float? What do you oh, have to do? so validating is basically we do a cast and actually do the hardcore measurements on the ship. Right. <laughs> you know, together. Like, yes, yeah, there yeah, you yeah, go. Yeah. As close to real time as possible. And all of our floats so far have been have been have been um, validated by a cast. So we don't use it to calibrate. We use an algorithm to calibrate. Right, mm. using the deep deep values that the float um, we calibrate if we have to nudge to a. But uh, and all of this is, of course, online available every, you know, and they're all through um, the uh, uh, the deck now. You can actually get them at the um, uh, the data, the Argo data center. So um, in addition to, you know, um, Ken Johnson at the Monterey Bay is basically curating everyone's BGC floats at this point, uh, which is kind of amazing. They've done uh, some extraordinary work on data handling to make sure it's utterly transparent. And within two hours, every floats um, had an uh, automated QC quality control algorithm applied and is put on the web, period. Totally transparent. No holding back. I remember this reminds me of something that, that Jorge talked about once. That he said, well, a couple generations ago, the challenge was to get a, a three-dimensional picture of the ocean. He may have even said something like, mm-hmm. well, when I was younger and coming up, our challenge was to get the three-dimensional picture. And now we need to move into getting the four-dimensional picture yes. of the ocean, which includes the time evolution. So, and then and future. And future evolution. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So when you have these you know, robotic profilers in the ocean, you can suddenly know something about the not only the kind of vertical structure but like how that changes over time because you could have the same kind of profile in roughly the same region and we it's so important and we've even built in um aussie uh, observing system simulation experiments into the dna of socom it was right from the first year we did uh aussies and observing system design experiments in order to say how many floats do we need in order to capture the change in the variability we're looking for? Um, how many floats do we need worldwide? What is the distribution? Should it be random? Should it be evenly spaced? Should mm-hmm. it be concentrated? I mean, these are all testable things in our lovely models. And, and what I'm shocked by is how few observing systems are actually tested this way before we deploy them. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't you know what you can get before you actually go to all the effort of putting it out, yeah. I mean, absolutely. one would think. Except, uh, I think often we don't we don't plan. Except, I have nothing but to plan because you know I start out with you know go to the Southern Ocean. There's just no measurements. I mean, I can actually mm. point on a map of all the pH measurements ever made in the Southern Ocean. I know which three cruises are mine <laughs> because there are just so few that they are obvious. You know, you can point at them. I did and, these. I did those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and now we have and uh, now we have Argo doing it and. We we still need the ships and we still need those measurements, but at least in the United States, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the United States since 1989, we've seen fewer measurements. We've mm. made fewer ocean measurements every year mm. from ships because we have fewer ships. We don't maintain the same fleet and we can't keep them working as long, you know, when they're spending more time um, in dry dock transitioning and other things. So yeah. we're literally making fewer measurements from ship. And this is, I think, in a transitioning world where the transient climate is entirely uh, an ocean-controlled uh, phenomenon here, mm. coupled, but but it's the ocean heat uptake. Mm. Um, I'm stunned that we're allowing our 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 dominance in this area to decline mm. just because the end of the Cold War, we're no longer putting the the, the muscle in. In the in the grand scheme of things, you know, these measurements wouldn't cost that much more. You know, getting ships and getting people to run them 
like it's not hugely expensive in the grand scheme no, of the entire no, budget of, course of not. you know national budget well we like used to basically kind of inherit from the navy yeah um but they uh, that's just not as effective anymore yeah. and and what's funny is that you know norfolk for the united states is our biggest naval base and it's only half a meter from being underwater Mm. So the conference like we're having here today talking about what the potential projections are for sea level rise, given the melting of the Antarctic ice sheet is sort of first order to their planning process. Mm. Um, I understand that they're worried about more immediate right now threats. But if you knew that the enemy was coming to get your biggest naval base within 20 to 30 years, mm. wouldn't you move a little faster when what would you plan or sacrifice or or spend in order to make sure that you could either avoid mitigate or adapt to whatever changes were coming you'd think so you'd think that at least you wouldn't put your fingers in your ears and go la, 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 la. well i'm not sure they are i just think at this point we still have this um political communications problem mm. um and uh it's one of the reasons why i'm 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 quite content to live in a big red state and do my work from there because we mm. have to. We mm. we have to be able to talk to, um, at least in our style of government in the United States, given our, I think we're roughly somewhere between 50 and 60% of the global oceanographic budget. Mm. <laughs> uh, I could mm. be wrong, but I, I think those are the numbers. And uh, so if we don't get off the dime, if we don't continue to build strength there and support others, um, uh, we'll backslide. Yeah. And we were backsliding before Argo. Argo is the only reason we haven't we're able to see these things, and I mean not that the ships can't don't you know do you know, especially go ship is the backbone measurements these long transects that get done and they're brutal every forty kilometers another full cast all the way to the bottom, hmm. brilliant, but uh, we just don't have that many ships and not enough support to do you know to do more than just once a decade. Hmm. The each one of these transects the occupation is basically once a decade. Hold the line. Yeah, hold, hold the line. line. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it is sacrifice because these people, you know, um, leave their families and out they go. Yeah, and it's a sure. long time and it's hard. I remember Chris Sabine talking about missing the birth of one of his kids, for example, because he was out on a cruise. Because he was out. Yeah. These uh, are not uncommon stories. Yeah. Hold the line could be, you know, A23 is the line of that yes. line. <laughs> Hold yes. these lines. <laughs> well, P16, it's the one that goes down the Pacific for yeah. me that I need, you know, these are hard, hard work. Hmm. And uh, we, we, and this is how we know what our ocean is doing. Do you know this and our robots, you yeah. know, these Argo floats, it's pretty extraordinary. So I appreciate all the work that my colleagues do worldwide. I, I get to see it in their papers. I get to use their data to validate climate models and and try to improve them. It's 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 critical work. And and in fact, we work. You know, um, the other part is is this peer review thing. It's crucial. Everybody thinks that we're just you know making all this work and then we just publish it. That's not how it goes at all. No. First of all, you have to get grant funded, which. At least in the U.S., it's one in it's about eleven percent mm. at the National Science Foundation. Yeah. It's a one in ten. Now, if you're a senior scientist who's in a hot area, it might be more like one in three. <laughs> but it's still one in three, and you have yeah. to write those and then look at all the reviews. And they might get five paper reviews and six panel reviews, and and then a summary. You know, it, these are a lot of beatings. You know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. And then after you get that's it funded true. and you're like, yay, I got it funded. Then you have to do all the work and you, you go and it. you do all the work and your students do the work. And then you're trying to get them to do the papers so that they can get their dissertations out and they get them done and it goes forward. And, you know, so you're training at the same time you're examining, at the same time you're analyzing, at the same time you're deploying and all the rest of it. It's a blast. It's wonderful. But it's also incredibly intense work. So then you submit that paper. And your colleagues get a good hard look at it and, and they dish out a few more, you know, choice words and you go back to your drawing board and you try again. And yeah. again, if it takes it, Persistence. it is, it is. And it we are, we are a small community when we, we hew to the rigor of our, of our, of our senior colleagues and, and we, and yet we make progress. This mm. is how we do it. And what's different too, is that they used to sit on their data. Mm. And we make it all available. Yeah, that's true. GoShip makes their data available the second they get off the ship, practically. But at least within three to six months, it's all out. Argo is is on the GTS. It's yeah. actually made available on the Global Telecommunications Service. You know, for weather forecasts, and pretty much immediately. Immediately, you know, and it, GTS is immediate. You know, yeah. up, poof, off she goes. We're working towards that with SOCOM, but we're you know within two hours, mm. near real time at this point. But these are these are extraordinary advances, and the CMIP process, you know, the couple monolithic comparison process, we make all the data available for anyone to work on. So here are these cloud modeling centers that work so hard to produce these projections and then they give it away, you know, and they do it, all of it. And then people don't even like call them up or, or send them an email and say, hey, I'm going to use your data. Would you like to be a co-author on the paper? They don't bother. They just use it because it's all available on the Earth System Grid Federation, okay. you know, which is kind of extraordinary that that's how that the pre- the sort of urgency is so so huge that they don't mind they want you to use, steal this book please please yeah absolutely. yes take my data include it in your analysis mm. if i can help great i don't need to be a co-author just just get it out there let's move faster i can't it's an extraordinary thing to be part of a community like that i wonder to my mind it's like you know, kind of the a cathedral, you know, of, mm. of, of science because it's taking stonemasons and glaciers and, you know, it's taking climate modelers and observationalists and, you know, they're, they're land people and atmosphere people and ocean people and ice people. And they're working across countries and boundaries and, you know, scraping for the money and trying to train all the students and trading them back and forth and all the rest of it. And what they come up with are these projections that are trying to help people save their lives and property. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. That's what they're yeah. doing. And they do it. You know, yes, they're paid. Yes, these are nice jobs if they can get them. But many of our young people have to move institutions every couple of years for a decade or more. Yeah. It's not small how hard you have to work to be part of this community. Um, and once you make it, you then have to write grant after grant after grant after grant just to get your your young ones, you know, launched and to complete these pictures where you're like, okay, we get on the horn and we're on our go-to meeting online. And okay, if you can get through the UK, you know, or you can get through NERC or you can get through the NSF, then we'll put some here and you put some there. It's like stone soup. Everybody... I've got a piece of cauliflower. Well, I've got half a chicken. Well, I've got, you know, only one tomato. Can I still play? Yes, you can still play. Yeah. Come on in. We want your tomato. 
it's it's a thing. It's made of Argo floats or yes. ships or, or ships or or, or computer time computer or time. or young people mm-hmm. or moorings or drifters or you know uh, BGC measurements. I mean, we'll take it, right? Yeah. Stone soup. But but in some ways, it is uh, because we're so small. We we have no we have no choice, and because it's so critical. And I'm not sure the world has woken up. I mean. The two examples I usually use are the Norfolk one, half a meter sea level, and and it's underwater. Yeah. And then, um, and it's our biggest naval base. And the other one is the Great Barrier Reef. Took a million years to build, and in two years, half of it died. Yeah. Kim. A million years to build, and it died in two mm. years, half, and only 15% of that apparently has recovered. Yeah. Yeah. Kim. It's, Kim Cobb talks about snorkeling with, uh, you know, in, in reef areas and just kind of witnessing that death and devastation on a big scale. And then she talks about the kind of heart wrenching impact that that's had. And to think about the time scale is really, is really shocking. Kim and, and I uh, were yeah. office mates at Scripps. Yeah. Yep. Really? Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. That's, that's cool. Um, we, we uh, I haven't really talked with her that much, but we overlapped a, a little bit at, at Georgia Tech when I was there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and uh, she's another good Twitter science Twitter presence. She's, she is, yeah. she is, and now she's on CNN, so she's got thousands, yeah. tens of thousands of followers. Pretty amazing. Yeah, and she she does a lot of uh, there's she, she does try to put herself out there in an earnest way. I think to give you know this true picture of a scientist who's like no i'm, I'm in it i'm here I, she's I'm a real climate scientist yes. and she has four kids mm. and she's a teacher too mm. you know she's mm-hmm. a real scientist with four kids and and she teaches as well yeah it is an, a kind of extraordinary thing that she, she does goes out into the field mm-hmm. <laughs> she takes takes core measurements mm-hmm. takes her uh, students with her into caves and yep. takes paleo re- makes paleo reconstructions and yeah, you, you've articulated a lot of reasons why I really like being in the field. I really like being an oceanographer, and to me, I I still kind of just feel like I'm. I'm sometimes I still feel like I'm just kind of looking at it and kind of spectating a little bit. I kind of feel like I'm. I'm so privileged to be like you know in the room at all. I'm just happy to be in the in the party, and uh, you know, it's. But I really like how you you infused the sense of doing this job with like a a pragmatic optimism, a pragmatic sense of responsibility and a pragmatic sense of there's like a duty of care almost of like, yeah, you know, yes. Yeah. I feel it. I, I think it's real and true. Even if you don't know it's there, it's Mm -hmm. still there. And when you get used to the people in your field, you know, when you, um, interact with them of year after year as you get older you start to you can see and the not just the the old ones you know making gosh you know using their frequent flyer miles to get their <clears> students <throat> to that conference oh yeah i mean real real dedication real sacrifice you know that extra barbecue just to make sure everybody feels included and that they're welcome in the lab the same way they're welcome in your home yeah. i mean there's a there's amazing things that go on that are part of that community making because we can't afford to lose anybody. We love these students. I mean, I love these students. <laughs> I love all these young people who are it is hard on them. The the recession is not really over. 
<laughs> I mean, it is in some ways, but really. in science, we've been roughly flat funded most of places in the world. And yet we went from one PPM increase in the atmosphere in the 90s per year to two in the thousands to three in the teens. And last year, May to May, it was 3.5 parts per million increase yeah. in the atmosphere. And yet over. the total workforce has stayed roughly the same, maybe a small growth. That to me is profoundly not workable. You know, 6,000 people out of 7 billion? Really? We really (laughs) think that's the right size to tackle this problem? I don't. And even if I did, I still wouldn't want to lose any one of these bright young people because... Part of the impact is, can I build a satellite that'll give me better winds over the ocean? Can I build more Argo floats or promote their growth? Can I build a better climate model? Can I look at the feedbacks in a way that hasn't been done? Um, These are important things, but it's also, I am desperate for my young ones to step right when I drop in the traces, and I will, when they, I want them to step right over me and get up that hill. Do you know what I mean? I, mm. I will give them every last little boost I can because they're my reinforcements. They're our reinforcements. Yeah. We, we need them. It's a clear, if you look at the projections and you believe what they say, and there is unbelievable certainty at this point that, that this is where we're headed, then you have to look at our workforce, look at our young people and say, how can I help? Yeah. Here's my shoulder. Here's my knee. Up you go. Come on. You know, what can I do to help get you where you need to go? Because we can't do it alone. There's not a big enough workforce now. We need to get more. And on the rations we've currently got, so half of what I'm trying to do is I want Congress to move their butts. (laughs) I really think I want more ships. I want more satellites. I want more Argo floats. I want more people. I want a lot more people. I think every university should have five oceanographers at a bare minimum. And you know they don't. Mm-hmm. They have 20 to 30 geologists in their geology department, and they do not have five oceanographers. They might have an entire atmospheric sciences department, but they do not have five oceanographers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time. I think they need to move. You know, if you like your forecast, thank an oceanographer. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, I love all of that. That's fantastic. Well, Um, we we work, you know, uh, this, I have 20 to 25 years left to work. Yeah. I've got nothing better to do. I just got my last (laughs) promotion. I'm full professor now. Congratulations. I have absolutely nothing better to do with my life than trying to, you know, what, what did Churchill say? If every preparation is made, if all do their best, we have to make every preparation. We have to Mm. do our best. And, and I know my colleagues are doing it. We just need to get the attention of our, of our representatives, of our, of our national governments, and the people. Yeah. Because once they make up their mind, they'll move. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know about in the UK, but I know they will at home. I hope in the UK, too. Yeah. <laughs> they're, a little, they're a little preoccupied over here. <laughs> well, the, the whole the, 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 the Extinction Rebellion thing has been interesting. And that's not exactly the same thing as, like, promoting science exactly. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this. Have you seen any of this stuff, the Extinction Rebellion stuff? So they've been staging, you know, peaceful demonstrations, shutting down parts of London. And I thought that that has been interesting because there is an energy there and there is a sense of, like, okay, let's let's do something. Let's get some motivation. I think solutions are going to have to be a huge part of the conversation. But... 
I think if you can't measure their impact, mm-hmm. then we are going to end up with a lot of greenwashing, mm-hmm. which yeah. is just where people think they've done something important and it turns out to not. So I've actually had people ask me if plastic is part of the climate problem. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, no, it no. isn't. No. It, you know, it doesn't change the warming of the ocean. Um, we really... We, you know, and uh, those messages do get mixed up often. Yeah, they, they really do. do. Yeah, they really do, and it's uh, it's really serious. I love things like Project Drawdown, which actually has a ranked list of what yes. is the biggest bounce per ounce. You know, how would we actually reduce our carbon emissions the most? Which activities? Because it's very hard to be. Uh, hard-nosed about this you know is it recycling is it it turns out it's ozone destroying chemicals are the number one (laughs) Mm. we uh but a lot of this is also going to be collective action it can't just be one country because no one country owns it all we have to do it together and so measuring it what we scientists can do is the fundamental that leads to the naming and shaming Mm. if you can't measure it how are we going to manage it? I think at New Orleans, you gave a really nice talk along those lines at Ocean Sciences where you were saying, well, now, okay, we have an agreement. We have the Paris Agreement. That's great. But we need a system for checking to see, is the world doing anything? That's right. Or are we- what I want is the, now that we're getting these Argo floats out, as yeah. soon as we get up to about 800, somewhere between 500 and 800, we'll have enough to actually have reduced the uncertainty in the carbon fluxes over the ocean well enough to be attributing the top 10 economies. So we'll assimilate into an Earth system model, and they're already doing it at GMR and other places. We're doing it as well. Um, but we don't have quite enough data in the ocean yet in order to be able to say, you know, for China, when it blows across the Pacific to the U.S., we say, hey, what are you doing? And they say it was the ocean. I'm like, ah. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't just stuff it under the ocean rug. They're like, you can't prove it. I'm like, any second now we'll be able to prove it. And that's the whole point is that the oceans very uh, co-varies on very large scales, 200 400 kilometers even in some places in the subtropical jar, which means we don't need a million measurements. We need about 800 BGC Argo floats with those pH and nitrate and oxygen sensors. And once we get that array out, we already have a great system in the atmosphere. What's the piece that's missing? The land. But those are actually national boundaries Hmm. within that you can attribute all the change to an individual government. Right. Which is perfect. So, and it just happens that the top ten emitters that emit way more than half of all the of all the carbon are enormous land areas like India, China, the U.S., Canada. You know, we could count the EU as one. Although I don't know about you guys with this whole Brexit thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't know either. I don't know either. But but imagine that we could actually. I like. I have a Nest. You know that does my uh, heat oh, yeah, and yeah. cooling. And every month they send me a little report, and the report says you get three green leaves for adjusting your schedule to be more efficient yay one 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 month it was you get three black leaves because you turn the heat down in the summer and you know your schedule it was really hot in arizona and i was pregnant mm. and i was roasting and i turned it down to like 67 you know because i'm my my husband was wearing a big parka <laughs> it was terrible but i got black leaves because i made my schedule so poorly and efficient i just want to give the top 10 economies in the world and yeah, I don't even want to give them a bill. I just want to, here's posted as a list. Mm. Your January compared to last January, you get three green leaves. Yay. Way to go. Yeah. You yeah. over there get nine black ones. <laughs> Turn the coal off. Yeah. You know, this is just, there are more efficient, better ways 
that uh, to to provide your energy than that. Yeah, the UK's had some coal-free days this year, a few in a row. I've like, been you know, watching you guys on yeah. the news. I'm so jealous. In Arizona, <laughs> we're actually um, in the process of uh, proposing that we uh, instrument the Utah and New Mexico borders because most of our air is in from the southwest. Mm. So what we'd like to do is actually. Uh, we have weather models that do tracers now beautifully. We just want to see what our impact is on what on air quality. Hmm. And that way, once we're measuring, can we start pressing for, you know, zero carbon emissions? Hmm. Now, we still have a transportation sector that's, you know, full of cars and trucks. But our electricity, we think we can do a lot with. And I'm actually the chair of the AGU Award for Early Career Researchers. Hmm. Um on science for solutions oh, and i i just i have hope do you know what i mean i i this is this is young people and some muscle and money from us old folks is gonna we're gonna we're gonna save the day i just know it <laughs> i love that i love that yeah you probably get people asking you i think this is a fairly common question when people learn you're in climate and i've gotten a feeling for what i think your answer might be already but you know how do you stave off hopelessness and how do you stay you know optimistic about the future in a pragmatic kind of way and you just described it right you just said well there are people who who care and there are young people who care and they're coming up with solutions that's right energy there the momentum is there it can yep. be discouraging when you perceive that the opposite is also there. There are also, you know, some, some momentum, I'm, some inertia. I'm sitting in England inertia. and I'm thinking about the fact that it took us a while to get into the war, into huh. World War II. Huh. It took us a while to come. Yeah. We, we dragged our feet. We whined. We said it wasn't so bad, you know, mm. and then we moved. Mm. We, we will move. I believe that Welter Monk... I believe that when he told us to hold the line that we will, I believe that the people will come to our aid. I love that. <laughs> I believe that when we call yeah. to them, that they will answer. It, it's important that we call in many voices. Yeah. It's important that we, that, we, that we let all of our data hang out. But I believe that when we call to them, they will answer. I do. I have profound faith because we've done it in the past. Yeah. You know, and it, it may be a little Dunkirk mission full of a bazillion <laughs> little boats, you know. Mm. Maybe we can't do it with individual governments. Maybe we just can't make them mm. turn. But mm. that doesn't mean we can't do it with smaller boats. Smaller you know, boats. we people. just more of them, more people. And yeah. we're getting better at knowing what are the really smart things to do and we do need government organization to do things like, you know, large scale solar and large scale, you know, um, we, we do need help and we, we're just going to have to elect the proper representatives and, and get on with it. Yeah. But in this case, it's because prosperity and sustainability align because mm. we're all cheap. We all want to spend less on things like gas and, and electricity and getting to work every day. And in this case, having it be cheaper and more robust is part of the business model of a carbon-free yeah. economy. The U.S. has dropped 15% on their emissions in the last 10 years. And uh, they did it while growing the economy. Mm-hmm. So I know, mm-hmm. at least in the U.S., we can do this. They've been doing it in England, too. Yeah. There are real models for making money and happiness and better, cleaner air while actually decarbonizing your economy. There's Absolutely. just no reason not to do it. There's something that uh, Scott Denning is, is fond of saying. is He said, well, you know, 
how much money we made in the last, like making our current energy infrastructure. Like a lot of wealth was generated, you know, making our current kind of dirty energy system. He's like, we can do that again. We can make another new energy system and generate oh, a tremendous amount absolutely. of wealth, making a new absolutely. cleaner energy system. I mean, I know that just for my state, we are absolutely looking at being able to hang out our green amazing air quality, you know, beautiful Grand Canyon state, right? Tourism, you know, people who want the next Silicon Valley who don't want to slug through the traffic in California Mm -hmm. or the smog, you know, we're, we're hoping to do that because we think that, you know, better living environment, um, is, is worth it to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. especially young folks. And that if you're looking for that kind of investment of their lives and their kids and their property and all the rest of it, that you really have to respond to the, the young folks values. And they're telling us that they want to be able to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. Like start with the values, you know, start yes. with what people, start with what people care about, what matters to them. Exactly. So yeah. Like you're talking exactly. about your, your living conditions, that's your right. kids living conditions, your grand, you know, the, and, and to be honest, it's, it used to be, well, maybe it's going to be too expensive anymore. That's not mm, an argument mm, anymore. Yeah, it really yeah. isn't. Yes. We're going to have to migrate. It would be better if we migrated quicker. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And those who migrate quickest will be able to actually sell that technology to a huge, hungry world for it. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. if you figure out the next best solar plant, you figure out the next best battery, you figure out the next best you know, uh, uh, way to get off coal, natural gas, etc., absolutely everybody will hmm. knock it off. I mean, it's just one of those. And I plan on accelerating that by helping measure the the carbon fluxes um, from land by eliminating the 72% of the world that's ocean from from, uh, being able to be that rug that they stuff their carbon under. Mm. So we, we, we work alone together in the same direction. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's, you know, my privilege to get to work in this, this area, but we're, we're, we're watching, won't it be better when we bend that curve, the kind of celebration that there'll be? I mean, it's a really big thing. Um, I love that. I need to bottle that sense, sense of uh, optimism and promise. I need to, you know, need to, <laughs> well, I, the I worse it gets, the louder sometimes. that Trump or, you know, yeah. whatever crazy Berlusconi, I don't know, yeah. whatever crazy politician says awful, horrible things and yeah. he makes you really be depressed. You have to imagine that this is exactly, exactly why, you know, it's, you need to channel your Shakespeare. You need to, you mm. know, on St. Crispin's day, you know, we don't need, we don't need more. We just mm-hmm. need to win, you know, mm-hmm. better than it just be us. Well, okay. I'm I'm not going to say that because I want everybody in, but it's, we really can. And it, it will make for a story. I mean, just the yeah. most amazing story to tell your kids. Well, I was working in this field and it looked like we would never change. And they were working against us and they were loud and they called yeah. us liars and they sued Michael Mann and they tried to tell us that we couldn't talk about our research and they censored our papers. And like, oh, no, Grandpa, no, <laughs> they didn't. Yes, they did. And it was awful and I almost gave up and it was terrible. But I stuck with it and all my friends stuck with it. And then, and then... The people came and they changed it and it was amazing. You get to live in this beautiful, clean air world because, you know, me and my friends, we stuck it out when it was hard. Oh, yeah. I love that. 
Okay. <laughs> that good, will be the story. It's good stuff. That's going to be the story. Has to be. And yeah, the worse it is, be. I mean, I actually the first time my my email ended up in the congressional record was when I was working in GFDL, and and the office of political affairs was sitting on one of my papers. Really? Yes. And sitting on meaning they refusing to allow me to publish it. it. Oh wow! So that was the Arizona under the Bush administration. I was working at GFDL, and oh, I see. Right, I had to right, have approval right. in order to get my paper, submit my paper, and they would not give it. Wow! Yeah, actually, and my my so my email corresponding with the Office of Political Affairs asking them, please, sir, may you will you allow me to submit my paper for publication? Was uh, so it's one of the so, and here's the other thing, which is that uh, technically. The Supreme Court of the United States has already ruled in 2007 that carbon is a pollutant and Mm. must be regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency Mm. under the Mm. Clean Air Act. And the only brief they cited when they ruled was the scientist brief. And I'm one of the 13 scientists on that brief. Yeah. yeah. So... So there, there you go. There's a direct policy, direct, a direct impact. Well, we didn't you know. say anything political. Yeah. We said the truth. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And they absolutely. believed us. Yeah. And they ruled. And that's why there's a clean power plant and other initiatives, because the EPA is grappling with how to regulate that in, in an environment where the administrative branch would like to, you know, weaken those regulations. Yeah. But the Supreme Court's already ruled that carbon is a pollutant. That's right. I, I like that part about when you said we're just trying to tell the truth like that's our job you know as scientists we're just we are really trying to report on the state of the system and what we think it will do in the future and yeah we do have our own personal things we care about but ultimately we report and they decide yeah i mean that that's that's right i mean that's the that's the part that we can be equally passionate about that, about just getting you. No, I'm just getting you the best information that I can get you. That's I'm right. Giving you the, the most complete description that you need to yep. make whatever decision that you decide you you want to make about possible future scenarios. I'm I might worry about my elected representatives, but I'm not worried about my neighbors. Hmm. Yeah. My neighbors are great, great folks. They're they're nice. They work hard. They're they're good to their kids. I. They keep their lawns neat, you know, or reasonably so. <laughs> I'm wondering what my lawn looks like right now. And uh, so I, I worry about our political class, but I don't worry about, I don't worry about them. I mm. believe that when we call, they'll answer. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's amazing. You have, you have a real source for this, this optimism, a real source for this. And it, it's so clear. And that always, that always shines through. You know? <laughs> Even when you're just giving a science talk, there's something about like, you know, the energy behind it, you know, is, is coming through. It's there. And thank you for sharing. Like you share that with everyone. You share that with the community. And it's so important. So thank, and thank you for doing that. It's, thank it, you. Uh, make me blush. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's something that people notice. You know, they get, they get inspired by it. They get inspired by it, and because we need we need those voices. I work we in an amazing that. moment in both time and space, yeah. and with these people, and mm. they are stained glass window people. I know mm. it. You know, it's the sort of thing where if I have to pick you up and carry you out of the fiery building, I'll do it because <laughs> it's fully realized how how hard everybody's working, how dedicated they are, how much of their lives they've you know, commute from husband to wife, 
you know, um, I was married for two and a half years before I lived in the same city with my husband. Oh, wow. And I'm, I'm common. I'm not uncommon. Yeah, yeah. We do this because these centers of excellence are only in certain places. It hasn't gotten everywhere. Not every place has got five oceanographers yet. Yeah, yeah. Two-body uh, problems. So two-body problems and, uh, you know, and juggling your children. We've, we've, you know, you wear your baby on your front, you know, and everybody, men and women, are sharing these responsibilities. But I had two kids C-section with no maternity leave, you know, because they just weren't ready for us, right? Yeah. That we have it now at the University of Arizona, but we didn't when I was okay. doing it. You know, <laughs> they said, hey, you can have five sick days. I'm like, <laughs> okay. But it's real. And so it's it's I it's not just a faith that, that everybody is coming along nicely. It's I see it. You see it. Yeah. We're we're moving. You see it's just there. sometimes when your head's down and you're working really hard and there's just all this barrage of news and garbage coming at you. You, you it turns your head. But if you just focus on all those other fantastic people, you know, mm. that are working in the same trenches, yeah. it 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 constantly renews my my hope. There's um there's a quote that it, it, it's get, gets passed around a reasonable amount. So I imagine people probably have heard it. But it's something that Mr. Rogers says that his his mom used to say. So, you know, Mr. Rogers um, saw something kind of tragic on the news. I don't remember what it was or what it was in the story. And apparently his mom very quickly said, well, look for the helpers. You know, anytime something goes wrong, anytime there's a tragedy, just there's always people there who are ready to help and ready to, to pitch in. And that, uh, that I think that's an important thing to keep remembering. And it, it sounds right. like, you know, you know, just what you said about it's easy to get distracted by by the noise and by some of the chaos and by some of the negative look at the things, helpers look for the They're helpers instead all around you can and find them there they might not make as much noise as the big <laughs> as, they you know, don't you know they I mean, don't but, but in fact that's that i think it's a characteristic of the helpers mm-hmm. that's a great way to put it because a characteristic of the helpers is they're helping yeah they're not talking about helping. Yes. They're actually helping. Okay. They're putting their 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 life, their their moments where it counts. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, how are you doing on time? How are you feeling? I should you probably, yeah. you know, eventually. Yeah. Have a, yeah. Do you have questions? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not doing anything else, yeah. so I'm 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 off to uh, back to my uh, digs at the Churchill one. <laughs> yeah. How, how is it over there? Is it okay over there? Is oh, right? it's, uh, except for the fact that there was no hot water this morning. <laughs> really? No hot water? That seems unfortunate. None. It was very unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> I stood there with it running for like 15 minutes. I'm feeling very wasteful. And I'm like, any minute now? It never warmed up. I went to the Porter's Lodge and they're like, oh yeah, it's building wide. I'm like, really? Oh, oh, that's terrible. Did they say anything? I guess... They're going to try to fix it, They'll but, fix it. you know. I'm sure it'll be fixed by the time I get back, but it was one of those things. It, I mean, it's actually a lot of fun to be right here in Cambridge. It is a blast. How beautiful is it? I've never here. been here either. Yeah, no, this is been. my first visit. I've been to other places in the UK, yeah. you know, like Reading or Hadley or... <laughs> 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 uh, but not... Um, not here. Not here. No. It can be really nice in the summer like this. Uh, it's it's going to warm up a little bit. But the like hedgerows were full of flowers. And yeah. uh, everybody was on bikes and on foot. Yeah. And it was lovely. It just knock your eye out green. Really beautiful. And the blue skies and the beautiful weather, it's just yeah. something else. So England has this reputation for being rainy, but um, in England and uh, Cambridge, 
this part of England anyway, we get to cheat a little bit because it's actually pretty dry. Like it doesn't rain that much That's in so this part nice. of England. So it's, it it's really beautiful. And it, it, the other part is, is that, um, you know, Harvard modeled bits of itself after Cambridge and Oxford. And so it brings up my, my halcyon days as a hmm. undergrad, you yeah. know, this, the feeling of the bricked paths and the, you know, arches and all the rest of it is very familiar, not because, it's the same place, but because they they borrowed heavily. <laughs> yeah. A bit more stained here. It's more staining. It's been a yes. little longer. So yes. You know, well, I don't know. Harvard's now 300 and something. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure everybody's... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely had that feel. And uh, and you're, you can clearly... You can hear that joyful noise. All the undergrads, you know, the graduating, all the rest of it is just and their parents and all the rest. Mm. I mean, this is the kind of time of year where you remember that they're coming. The reinforcements coming. are coming. Reinforcements. Oh, that's Here nice. Here they are. I like that. It is my, I go every year to our graduation and uh, they let me lead out the graduate students who are lined up in their new hoods. They get hooded the day before by their, you know, in their um, colleges. And then the big commencement is where I, and I and my friend, friend Ted, who's a professor in pharmacy, the two of us every year, you know, like old faithful, come out with the big sticks and, yeah. and lead them in. Exactly. And it's, it's it's a thing. You're like I'm literally leading our reinforcements. These people who have adopted our collective values and made it all the way through <laughs> to getting hooded and all the rest of it, and here they are, and I get yeah. to show them to the, you know to the world and their parents and all the rest of it. It's a thing. Woo! The ceremony. It yeah. is. It is. You can't forget that life keeps ticking, and you know as long as we keep making these incremental and important. You know, we have to communicate, we have to, you know, and frankly, most of us like to be pretty private about our lives and our, you know, and that's why Twitter actually is a good thing for scientists because they need to know we're here mm-hmm. and that we're, we're at it because most of the time we're only talking to each other. Yeah. You know, we're not actually talking to the broader world. We're talking just to our colleagues. And it's good for folks to know we're... Only slightly robotic, some of us. But we're humans. Yes, exactly. (laughs) In the U.S., they think they've never met a scientist, most of them. They think they've never met a scientist. Mm. They have. I know they have. Mm. But they they can't name them. Most of the ones they want to name are dead. Mm. You know, or maybe maybe they can name, you know... uh, the very, vis- very visible yes, ones. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, yeah. or some equivalent. That's yeah. what they think of. And yet we're all around them. Yeah. We're absolutely. all around them. And so communication's part of our game now. Yeah. I'm really glad you do this podcast. That's pretty great. Thanks. I've, <laughs> I've, I hope they help. I've really enjoyed doing them. And I've really, it's, it's my excuse, my reason to sit down with people that I want to talk to, you know, in the broad oh, field of climate wonderful. science. And to just literally have—I mean, I felt like that was a really lovely conversation we had, and I'm really thankful. <laughs> I'm really thankful that I'm really thankful. It's that so I nice of you to ask. Mostly, you know? we just do what we do, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes somebody asks, "Well, why'd you do that?" <laughs> and it is really wonderful when somebody gives you the time to actually tell them. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, it's rare. It's yeah. really rare. Most of the time, everybody's just like, "So, can you get on this proposal for me?" <laughs> <laughs> sure, no problem. The <laughs> next thing <laughs> we usually wrap up with a little lightning round. Is that all right? All right, go ahead. So, and um, it's so it's just a series of questions about different things that you've you've learned. So, what's something that you've learned about uh, science in general? Some some takeaway, something that you didn't know before. Oh boy, 
uh, peer review is both essential and um, shouldn't have to feel like you're getting punched in the face. <laughs> it's essential but brutal, right? But right. maybe it doesn't need to be quite as brutal as it is. I think per- it needs to be brutal, but we all need to remind each other and our students that... Uh, Sticks and stones may break our bones, mm. but names will never hurt us. That it isn't actually <laughs> like being punched in the face. And we, we, we need to not be knocked on our heels, but actually, you know, dig right back in. Something took me a long time to learn, basically, that, oh, my God, I'm devastated. Oh, we thought this was no mm. good. That, that's not how you should respond to a review. It's more like, ooh, that was a good punch. All right, how am I going to get him? What can I do to, like, fix this and fix his wagon while I'm at it, you know? And it's, uh, it, it's something that took a long time, but it's so important that we give our, you know, unlike other academic even endeavors, giving it the old one two is essential. Yes. And it just takes a while to adjust to the fact that no, you were not actually punched. It's just your work. Yeah. And this is this is science, right? This is all we do is try to break stuff. And this then, is what we do. Yeah. And then the, the stuff that's left over is resilient and there might be something true about it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And this is how we're gonna avoid greenwashing. This mm. we mm. have to take our rigor and, and, and hard-nosed beatings and apply them and be willing to, yeah. you know, no flinching. This is, mm. this is our gig. This is what we do. Yeah. And this I'm is excited. the tough part. This yeah. is the part that it is. Some, it really, it's hard on everybody. Nobody likes it, but you know what? If you don't get in the ring, you can't win. Yeah. What's well, something about, you've learned about field work. Oh, okay. So, and not everyone will agree with me, but when you're going to see, there's several versions of people. You can have uh, um, grumpy, but competent, grumpy, incompetent, cheerful and competent, you know, cheerful and incompetent. So we got a two-dimensional. Yes, we got a exactly. Matrix here. Between cheerful and grumpy and yeah. knows what they're doing and doesn't know what they're doing. So absolutely best person ever to go to see with is someone who's cheerful and competent. Yeah. But the first quadrant person if we're in our, on our axis. I so will take cheerful and incompetent over grumpy. Yeah. Cheerful. Because at least I can make up for whatever it is they can't do. Yeah. But making up for grumpy is really, really hard. Really hard. Yeah. Pessimistic, yeah. cranky, and mean to people is just like the worst thing on a ship, mm. and it's like being in prison. You can't avoid them. Being trapped. Yeah. 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 So personally, I'm like, fine. I can teach you whatever you need to know how to do this properly. You know, I. You know, if you don't have enough stamina, you know, there's plenty. You know, the rest of us will pick up some slack, mm-hmm. and cheerful will make it happy to do but grumpy mm. so that's number <laughs> so not one. everyone will agree but that's that's what i think about field work <laughs> no, that's important you're, you're you're trapped in a floating science lab yep. in a floating little vessel yep. with somebody for potentially a few months and, and you either get off the ship and you're like your family forever and i love you <laughs> or you get off the ship and say i never want to see you as long as i live Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you must yeah. have had both experiences. I've had both. <laughs> I've only gotten to go on a ship one, one time ah, so far. okay. Yeah, I just had the one one opportunity so far. We got really lucky in that it was a very small cruise, and we all That's got along wonderful. super well. And isn't and it, it was, fun? Um, isn't it, it the best thing? It was I mean, amazing. 
Yeah. We went down into the, uh, and I'm sorry to people listening, I've talked about it before on here, but we went down into the Weddell Sea and took some ice cores. Like I, We got off of the ship and got onto some sea ice, took some ice cores, and uh, people hiked and on the Aww. South Georgia Island and took some ice cores by hand there. I've there. never and set then, foot on Antarctica. Yeah? I've been working yeah. in the Southern Ocean for very nearly 30 years. And so close. I've never actually, I've seen it. Yeah. I have not put my foot on it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I keep doing stuff with, more stuff with bass, maybe. <laughs> it could end up putting you in, in Rothera some, for a few months. And, uh, that's not, I'm not saying that as a representative. No, no, no. I have I no power. I no, no, no. no. If, <laughs> if I really wanted to go, I could beg polar programs and I'm sure mm. they'd find a way. But uh, on the other hand, I'd hate to take a spot that somebody had to have. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know how how hard it is to get people down there to do their work, and I've never wanted to, you know, sightsee. I, I mm. just want the work done. Cool. Yeah. What's something you learned about um, writing? Do you like writing? You okay with uh, I like writing. Like writing I'm right? a pragmatist, though, mm. like about writing. I am not in for highfalutin. I write my papers backwards, where I basically take the figures mm. that I like the best and I try to tell a story yeah, yeah, about yeah. about what I see. And, uh, yeah, and so I'm placing it in the that, – that story will determine what context I put it in. So the intro, you know, in the previous work, what I'm trying to say about it. There's many things I could say, mm-hmm. and the one I pick is the one I think is the most important, and then yeah. I, I write the rest of it based on that fundamental story I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think it's really good for people to hear that because – Especially when you're first starting out, you just see paper after paper where it looks it looks all clean and polished and logical. And like, oh, well, they must have started thinking about sea level rise. And they said, this is the next. Mm, probably that's not exactly how it no. happened. They probably worked no. backwards from. No. I mean, maybe some people work that way. But they, they may have. I was have, futzing you know, around with these new runs. And yeah. I saw this really cool thing <laughs> that I'd been suspecting for a while. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my God, can I pull this out a little better? I did. I verified with more runs. Pulled it out a little better yet. Made myself some nice figures and said, now I'm going to get this puppy out. Here we go. And it's very. Uh, workmanlike my writing process. Mm. I'm I don't write. I mean, I write a ton of email and reviews, yeah. and you know, I'm AE for you know paleo and uh, all kinds of you know. I do a lot of writing, but the creative writing is very very specific. Mm. Um, How about uh, teaching? What's something you learned about teaching? Teaching is a collaboration mm. between the teachers and the students. Yeah, and that's right. It's they a make it. Uh, extraordinary and the other thing is is if you're a junior faculty member you must set your time say two hours before your lecture that's all you get Hmm. because otherwise it will take over your life because it is fun to have all that positive validation when you do something really cool (laughs) and you mustn't let it um run all over everything Mm -hmm. and it's important it's very important and it's good to do it well and by the way everybody should try and knock off a professor that they think is really good because why you know apprenticing you apprentice like crazy for your research copy yes exactly absolutely copy their style copy their presentation copy their syllabus yeah i remember when i was a junior professor and i wrote to my uh to andrew to my advisor said andrew can i have your entire marine chemistry class with the notes and the slides (laughs) and he just said here's your zip here's here's the tarball yeah that was it do you know what i mean yeah that was it he just handed it over generous kind um, you know, so when you're picking an advisor, 
here's my, <laughs> when you're picking an advisor, there are three things. I'm sure you've heard this before. There are three things. You can pick somebody prestigious. You can pick somebody with a ton of money. You can pick somebody with, that is a kind and decent human being. Personally, I picked, Andrew was not so famous. Hmm. I picked somebody who was, you can have two out of three. You can't have all three. What's, what's the last name, Andrew? Andrew Dixon. Andrew Dixon. Yeah, yeah you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Exactly. So Andrew was both an amazing human being and had great funding. Hmm. And so I had a lot of fun in grad school. It was excellent. <laughs> Other people will pick in different ways, and I you know, I wouldn't complain. But frankly, that, that decent human being part makes your life better. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was important for me as well. I knew that... Um, I, I made a brief attempt to go into astrophysics, and it didn't, things didn't quite click there. I'm glad they didn't, by the way, because I really left my <laughs> I left my field now. <laughs> but it well, was we're going to be that, calling to those no. planetary guys yeah. people to help us get more stuff in space. It's yeah, going to happen, definitely. and I'm I'm really glad that they're doing what they're doing. But at the same time, at this point, I'm like. We all need to spend a little more time looking at this planet. <laughs> We're on it. We're on this planet. So we need to do something. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's so good that you found um, a good one. Absolutely, I did. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about Taka. Taka Ito. Yes. You know, he's, uh, Taka is one of my favorite people, yeah, too. Absolutely. He is wonderful. Really generous, really uh, kind-hearted person, really gen- gentle person. And creative and as all get. You know, which makes it easier because, you know, he's got 10 good ideas. You know, you don't have to, like, wait for one. (laughs) He's just a stream of them. It's wonderful. Here you go. Play with this for a little while. Exactly. Try this. (laughs) And you're like, ooh, I'll try that. (laughs) Bingo. Definitely. And, and, uh, I mean, a a good friend as well. You know, he he helped us out. And he let us, my young family and I, like, stay at his place for a while Mm -hmm. while while we were in transition between the U.S. and moving over here. You know, we stayed stayed with him and his family. Yeah. In Atlanta, with he also has four kids. You know, yep. speak, speaking of climate relevant, you know, scientists with four kids. Yes, you know, yeah. So, a kind person that was yes. that was important for me. I think those know. things are so important. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see what's something um, something you learned about kind of academia, which could be different than science, right? That could be navigating this kind of funny world have, that we have, have to navigate. I have a cynical answer yeah. and I have a, a hopeful answer. <laughs> the cynical answer is that young academics, you know, when you get your first lecturer or professor position, um, just remember that rearranging uh, the money at your institution. My university is a $1.2, $1.4 billion business. Hmm. They have a lot of money to invest in their scientists, hmm. in their professors, in their hmm. faculty. Don't forget... Because you're you're going to spend a lot of time going after you know NSF grants and that is wonderful you know a mm-hmm. NERC or whatever, but uh, your university can also support your work and they do and not to f- don't don't forget that's something I learned and I wish everyone should you know adopt because I think a lot of times as scientists we think oh well somebody will tell us where you know, the new building plans are mm. or the opportunities for, you know, a free postdoc, you know, a fellowship from the university um, or uh, a great summer, summer funding for your summer salary or, you know, no, no, they won't. They won't tell you, you have to find it. Mm. You know, <laughs> this again is a g- good place to have excellent mentors because they will tell you the straight shoot, you know, and how yeah. to find all that. And it will make your life easier and more fun. And less scary. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely recommend it. Yeah. Um, you said that was cynical, but it sounded pretty positive to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the sort of thing that I, it, um, a lot of um, uh, older faculty think of this as bureaucratic kind of bull, bull hucky. Mm-hmm. I personally think of it as, you know, 
um, playing the game properly, mm. <laughs> know the rules, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> know where yeah. go is, <laughs> <I mean>. <laughs> <laughs> do, do not pass go, do not collect $200 is bad. Or not to end up in jail. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, the, they're, you know, learning your university's um, mm. uh, uh, resources is, is not a trivial thing. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that was my cynical yeah, sort of, yeah. you know, nobody wants to think about that. You have to go to meetings or pick very carefully what your service will be hmm. to the university, but it is really important. I got on the technology refresh committee, which allowed me to help buy a shared memory supercomputer, hmm. which the next time around, I got to chair that committee and we got a much bigger one because <laughs> I went to the university and said, here's the return on investment handed over. So they did it. And mm. that service on that one university committee got me two petaflops of beautiful compute that's managed and maintained not by me, mm. <laughs> but by the IT guys, yeah. you know? Fantastic. It's brilliant. And I think we underestimate how much it's important to engage with our university, not mm. just with our colleagues. And the not pessimistic or the more optimistic answer? Don't miss commencement. You want to remember why we're here? Mm. Come see all their happy faces. Better yet, watch their parents weep because they will. Because they made a bet when they had this baby that this baby would at some point, uh, you know, take on some of their values, do better than they did, and go forth into the world to do amazing, good things. And to see them graduate and put on their fluffy robes and the funny hats and all the rest of it is to see them make that choice to have gone to all those classes and and made all those decisions that were good and right yeah. you know to yeah. adopt the values of their parents of the academy is old we're a th- you know, the university of bologna is like 1082 or some equivalent mm. and uh i have a woodblock print from very early it might have been 1100 and something of a lecturer you know at the university of bologna and he's standing on a wood box and there are these benches in front of him and the first benches they're scribbling furiously and in the the next bench is they're eating and chatting and all the rest of it and in the next bench is they're sleeping you yeah, know etc yeah. and in the very back they're fornicating <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of looked at that and went hmm not all that different then <laughs> there's continuity <laughs> there's continuity, Con- continuity. it's an old institution yeah, right yeah we so when when we when they graduate they're really buying into one of the ideas of the enlightenment, the ideas of how we can become better as humans. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so don't miss commencement. Everybody says, Oh, it's hot and I don't want to go. And it's a big pomp and circumstance kind of baloney. No, it isn't. It's all about our reinforcements and the reinforcements, not just of scientists or climate or anything like that, but of us as humans. Here they are. And if you miss it, you're missing out because it is, it is an extraordinary affirmation of what makes us most human. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, I feel like I've missed out on, on that a little bit, not being in a university type environment any, anymore, but that I remember that feeling of, you know, being inspired by, you know, Look the kind of young people Here who they around come. and like, yeah, it yeah. is amazing. It is amazing. And you forget that that's actually what we're doing at universities. Yeah. I mean, yes, we're creating new knowledge, and that is essential. But we also are sharing that burden with all the institutes and, mm. you know, government agencies, et cetera. So we're not alone in the creating new knowledge, but we are alone in helping create the reinforcements. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a great 
gift, a great boon that I get to be here to see them and do my best to help. Mm -hmm. And I understand why that's not everybody's cup of tea, not as a-okay with me, but, but I also think that there's tremendous value in this particular. And if you've forgotten how important they are to their parents, Mm -hmm. to the taxpayer, to the regular folks who, you know, we still don't have 50% graduation from college. We don't. That's I don't know about the mm. UK, but we're not there in the US. Fifty percent go, but not fifty percent finish. Mm. And we're still, you know, it's about forty something percent actually have some kind of degree. And that's uh, in a in a world that requires greater flexibility, greater knowledge, multiple kinds of jobs over their lifetimes. Teaching them how to learn mm. and teach themselves mm. is like one of the most important things we could possibly do. And when I think about the future of climate change and all the rest of it. I know that I love what I work on. I love the supercomputers, the robot flows, the satellites. I love this. It's my toys. They're fun. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure the most important thing I do is help open the door and invite them in. Hmm. Love that. <laughs> well, Joellen, you are inspiring. <laughs> I'm just one of the you regular sharks. Thanks you for having me. <laughs> Oh, you are. No, it's true. You're inspiring. And thank you for for your energy and for giving that to the world and, and for giving that to the community. And it, it, it means a lot. It's important. And, and thank you for being here and talking as well and for sharing your your yourself and your presence and your oh, your, your heart with you're everyone. You're very kind, you know? but <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's all of us. I think I'm not at all different. I think mm. this is just, we're all like this. I think some people can access it it's maybe it's harder for some people to access and put it out there in the world yes. and it's easier for other people to access it and say here it is yep this is the thing yeah <laughs> no but i think you're right i yeah. also have no idea what it feels like to be in a room without me <laughs> so i don't know the difference <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny <laughs> oh it's not actually as somebody pointed this out to me it was actually uh uh um <laughs> A scientist, actually, I think at that um, that Clivar meeting, mm, yeah. said, Joellen, I've been in a different breakout. Joellen, you just don't understand what it's like when you're not in the room. It's like it's like it's boring. <laughs> you're so full of crap. <laughs> I'm just having a good time because, and I, I just enjoy the heck out of my colleagues. You just are such extraordinary humans. Really. I mean, I look at the, you know, how many people do I hang out with who don't have PhDs and a decade of and tremendous field or modeling or theory experience? I agree with you, right? It's amazing. How? The community. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, just it's nuts. A- We're an applied science that requires the absolute pinnacle of education. Yeah. We, it requires. Yeah. And everybody thinks, well, you know, I can just get a couple, you know, put in a couple of years after undergrad and we'll be good. <laughs> I don't want to tell them how long it takes. <laughs> that's like that's like the literature review is the two years after you know you haven't even really gotten, gotten started. No, through. you well, haven't. You really haven't. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Joelle. Thank you thank so you. much. Have a good one. This is really good. There you have it. My conversation with Professor Joellen Russell at the University of Arizona. Thanks again to Professor Russell for sitting down with me and having this conversation. You can find her on Twitter at Deep Blue Sea Next and you can get updates about the podcast at Climate Sci Pod on Twitter also so let's see I think 
Professor Russell, to me, is a fantastic example of how science is really people-driven, it's community-driven. At least so much of it is. And uh, Professor Russell is one of those people who uh, puts a lot of care into putting that community together and keeping it coherent, and she, she cares about that as a whole unit, as a whole entity, uh, you know, so I think that's so critical. Science doesn't really get done unless those communities are healthy, unless the individuals driving it forward are healthy, at least not in my mind. It's certainly much better and much more dynamic and collaborative when we have people like Professor Russell around. So I'm very glad she's here. I'm very glad she's an oceanographer. And thanks to you for listening. Thanks to the audience for downloading and subscribing and rating and reviewing the podcast. All of that stuff really does help. I appreciate it. Again, uh, I'm on a monthly schedule, so I will release another one of these in September. I'll aim for about the middle. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye.